This is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to South China Sea Currents, our weekly podcast on what's happening in the South China Sea. I'm joined by our South China Sea reporter, Drake Long, to talk about what he's been writing on this week for RFA and Banar News. How are you doing, Drake? Doing pretty well. How about yourself? Pretty good. You had a busy week. Uh, yeah, got a lot of unexpected attention, which we'll talk about here shortly. Indeed we will. So this week in the South China Sea, it saw the end of a moratorium on fishing that had been declared by China at the start of May, what it described as a conservation measure to prevent overfishing. The completion of this moratorium was marked with some fanfare in the Chinese state media, which showed Chinese boats pouring out of port again. We'll get to that later, but first we turn to a different kind of Chinese vessel that was spotted moving away from its docking place, only with considerably more stealth. During his daily review of satellite imagery, Drake spotted a Chinese submarine at the entranceway of an underground bunker at a naval base on Hainan Island, which serves as a kind of gateway for China's navy in entering the South China Sea. Now, this image has been eyeballed a great deal in the past few days, and a lot of other media have run with it, as well as Radio Free Asia and Banar News. So, Drake, what is so unusual about this, this image or the sequence of images you got? Yeah, so on August 18th, we snapped a photo of a Type 93 nuclear attack submarine going into this underground bunker at Yulin Naval Base on Hainan Island, uh, like you said, which is in China's southernmost province. Um, so what's unusual about it is that I don't think I've ever seen a submarine outside the entrance to a supposedly secret bunker like this before. Uh, I looked around to see if anyone else had caught something like this. I didn't find anything. This might actually be the first instance of at least this type of submarine coming in or going out of this bunker. Uh, it's actually a bit of a strange story how I even spotted it. Um, I believe I was looking for fishing boats at the time to cover up that fishing ban story. And I even sent the photo to you and I said like, well, this is weird. There's a submarine here. What should we do with it? We put it on our social media account and then it just blew up. You know, this is in your daily review of the satellite imagery service that we subscribe to, right? Where you can sort of view pretty much anywhere in the South China Sea or the major ports and, and see what's going on. Yeah, many thanks to Planet Labs for providing this imagery for us. I mean, I check satellite imagery every single day, but I've never seen anything like this. It's very rare to catch a submarine, which is usually under the water, at a secret naval base without any sort of cloud cover. It's, it's kind of like finding a needle in a haystack. So what did we sort of learn, or what did you learn, both from the imagery and from the experts you spoke to about what you were seeing? Yeah, so I immediately sent it off to some submarine experts because I there were these two little tugboats on top of it, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. I sent a, a couple people, I said, you know, why is it being pushed around by tugboats? Is there something wrong with it? Is there an error? Apparently, that's actually a standard procedure. Basically, on August 18th, we have a submarine going in or coming out of the tunnel. On August 19th, what looks like the same submarine or maybe the same model or a similar model is getting pushed by those same two tugboats towards a pier on the outside of the bunker. So apparently that's standard procedure. Submarines can't really maneuver very easily on their own when they're docking, so they need some assistance from surface vessels. It's definitely, it's not necessarily comical looking, but it's definitely a little bit odd when you look at it uh, because, I mean, these submarines are fierce. This is a nuclear-powered attack submarine. This is very threatening to any type of ship that it comes across. And in a wartime scenario, I don't even want to think about that. And to see it, you know, get get moved around. I believe one of the experts we talked to was a retired captain of the U.S. Navy Reserve who, you know, called submarines that are surfaced move around like pigs, like greased pigs. You know, they, they wiggle around and they don't really have that much maneuverability. So it was very interesting. 
So do we know much about what happens inside that tunnel that the, the submarine emerged from? So it is a underground submarine construction repair facility. It's rumored to house about 20 different submarines. It's an open secret. And when I say open secret, I mean it's really not a secret whatsoever. China does not acknowledge there's a submarine base there. But ever since it was constructed, it's been on a lot of maps. Even on Planet Lab's map, it says secret submarine tunnel, basically. It's pretty comical that it's been exposed this much, despite being ostensibly not there for public consumption, so to speak. It's, it's hiding China's most advanced submarines. So it's very interesting. It's right next to, it's right inside Yulin Naval Base, which is the home base for China's South Sea Fleet. Other ships pop up there all the time. Surface vessels, um, some other more conventional type of submarines. It's actually very unusual that I saw the submarine coming in and out of that tunnel. There's usually other submarines docked outside. They were not there. They're all gone. No idea where they went. So it, a lot of interesting things this week. Indeed, intriguing stuff. So what do we know about the importance of China's submarine fleet for its strategy in the South China Sea. Yeah, so I, I sent this question off to a couple people and uh, Oriana Schuyler Mastro, who's at Stanford right now, gave me a pretty good answer for it. Submarines, China has the largest submarine fleet out of any of its neighbors, out of any other claimant in the South China Sea. The only country that comes moderately close are maybe like Japan and India, and even then not super close. Submarines in the South China Sea can maneuver around without being detected by anybody except for the USA, maybe Taiwan, maybe Japan. But no other country really has the aircraft or the ships to detect these sorts of things. And when you think about it, there's a very strong psychological message that you send to have these submarines moving around and other neighboring countries don't even know where they are. And I think that's part of the reason why on August 20th, China put out a press release showing off a different, similar submarine participating in an exercise near the East China Sea with its East Sea fleet. So, I mean, even though these are secret, I don't want to say secret weapons, but there's something that you want to keep secret. They're under sea all the time, yeah? But China advertises them quite frequently, I think, to kind of show, you know, we could have these submarines all over the waters of the South China Sea, and you're not even going to know that they're there. What do you think about that? And on top of that, they've built many of these bases in the South China Sea to hide their presence. A little while ago, we had a story on undersea cables where they were setting up kind of like an undersea monitoring network. The point of that is to make sure their submarines are not tailed by anybody while they're moving through the South China Sea. So on, it's a very interesting convergence of their South China Sea base building and the general kind of modernization of their Navy and submarine fleet that we've seen in recent years. I mean, we've also talked before in these podcasts about China's undersea surveys. Is that kind of work also perhaps linked to what it's doing with its submarines? Yeah, most definitely. So the whole thing with submarines is that you need to know what the ocean floor looks like so you can maneuver around carefully. I mean, the seabed has all sorts of like nooks and crannies and grooves that might make it easier for a submarine to maneuver through them. So China has the largest survey fleet, largest research vessel fleet in the world out of any other country, state-run survey vessels. And these surface vessels are all over the place in the South China Sea. We spot them constantly. At least every other day, I usually see a survey vessel doing something. Even if it's not in disputed waters, it's mapping out some area. And I believe that this concern that these survey vessels are mapping out the ocean floor to find routes for Chinese submarines to operate you know, unimpeded, that concern was what made India expel a Chinese survey ship back in December. And I think Australia has done the same thing before, too. So these two things are invariably linked. The survey research supplements the submarine fleet. The Chinese base building in the South China Sea also supplements 
the survey vessels and the submarines. So it's all clearly part of a, I don't want to say strategy, but they all kind of work well together. Now, you mentioned that China's submarine fleet outstrips those of its uh, neighbors in uh, East Asia. What about with the U.S.? How does China's submarine capabilities measure up to, to America's? Yeah, so this is something that uh, Oriana Schuyler Mastro told me definitively. The U.S. still has an advantage against China when it comes to undersea warfare. Um, we own the deep, someone else told me. I thought was a pretty good phrase to kind of throw in. Basically, they don't have parity with the U.S. when it comes to submarines. They're, they're making much better submarines, and the one that we spotted looks like one of their more advanced ones. You know, you want to be as quiet as possible. You want to be as swift as possible with your submarines. The U.S. has an advantage on that, but, I mean, the gap is closing pretty quickly. What we do have an advantage on is detection. So, I mean, we have things like uh, P-8 Poseidons, which is Navy aircraft that we kind of fly around, and we've seen them fly across the South China Sea much more frequently in recent weeks. That can detect Chinese subs pretty easily. Japan detected a submarine passing within 24 nautical miles of its Senkaku Islands, its southern chain of islands that are disputed with China, not too long ago. So these things can be detected, and the U.S. is kind of the gold standard when it comes to detecting submarines like this. But other countries in the region don't have anything like what the U.S. has when it comes to anti-submarine detection, anti-submarine warfare, whatever you want to call it. Indeed. Well, I mean, very good find for you. So let's move on to another topic about the end of the fishing ban in the South China Sea that China declared, what, three and a half months ago? Yep, May 1st. So what are you seeing now that that ban has ended? Well, yeah, like I said, the submarine picture originally came because I was looking for fishing boats. I was trying to see where Chinese fishing fleets were going to go now that the fishing ban was off. And sure enough, I caught quite a few of them moving through the Parasol Islands. So the fishing ban only covered the northern half of the South China Sea and also the East China Sea that's between China and Japan. So now that the ban's off, logically speaking, the fishing fleets are going to return to their traditional fishing grounds, which they have. You're seeing Chinese fishermen crop up around the Parasols. You're seeing them muscle out fishermen from Vietnam, and we can probably anticipate they're going to be muscling out fishermen from the Philippines as well. During the period of that fishing ban, you did see commercial fishing fleets from China go further and further out. Since they couldn't fish in that traditional northern area, they moved out to areas like the Galapagos Islands and the South Pacific, areas that are very, very far away from the Chinese shore. And I think you're going to see a lot of those ships move back closer to home now that the fishing ban is off. Now, I mean, this fishing ban was a, a sort of real object of resentment among neighboring countries like Vietnam and the Philippines, who sort of see it as massive jurisdictional overreach by China. But now that the ban has ended, they've got other concerns, right? Because they're worried now that there's a whole lot of Chinese ships that are going to be muscling in on their waters again. Well, yeah, the fishing dimension of all this is probably the most concerning to Vietnam and the Philippines in particular. They have these huge coastal communities that depend on fishing for their livelihood. China has heavily subsidized massive commercial fishing fleets that muscle their own fishermen out of the water. And as we've previously reported, you know, they're always accompanied by these paramilitary maritime militia or these Chinese Coast Guard ships that back them up. So one thing that we can probably anticipate, Vietnamese fishermen, Philippine fishermen are going to get much more pressure, the traditional kind of muscling out that we saw before the ban 
in the northern half of the South China Sea, around that Paracels area. And that's going to force them out of their traditional fishing spots. They're going to move further and further out, potentially to more dangerous territory, potentially running into the law enforcement of other countries and exacerbating tensions around illegal fishing in the region. So, as you say, there are other nations that sort of get into trouble and are accused of shipping in in other nations' waters. I mean, it isn't like China's the only troublemaker there. So what evidence have we seen of that recently? Yeah, you're right. China's not the only offender. China is the number one source of illegal fishing in the world, but Vietnam is number four in Asia. So just this week, we saw a terrible incident where a Vietnamese fisherman was shot and killed by Malaysian law enforcement while fishing illegally, allegedly in Malaysian waters. That kicked off a nasty snafu. On top of that, Thailand arrested some 30 Vietnamese fishermen that was illegally fishing in its waters recently as well, the same week. So we're already seeing Vietnamese fishermen move further and further out to to fish in these areas that they may need for their livelihood or what have you, but it's not their waters. And there's going to be a lot more butting of heads over this, I think, as time goes on. And as more Chinese fishermen come in and deplete the fishing stocks where they normally would be. And of course, there's a well-documented tension between Indonesia and Vietnam on their fishermen and their fishing rights between their borders. You're listening to South China Sea Currents. Um, Drake, I also wanted to ask you about diplomatic developments this week. I understand that the Philippines lodged a protest um, against China? Yeah, they lodged a protest about three months after an incident occurred. They lodged a protest about the Chinese Coast Guard supposedly confiscating some fishing equipment they have. These things, I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, but they're called payeos or something like that, where they're artificial reefs that gather fish. Philippines lodged a protest about the Chinese Coast Guard confiscating this equipment around Scarborough Shoal. Scarborough Shoal is occupied by China. It is claimed by the Philippines. The new U.S. position says that it is Philippine territory because it's on their continental shelf and China's occupation of it is illegal, but that hasn't stopped China whatsoever from occupying it with their Coast Guard. They let Filipino fishermen in every so often under a supposed agreement between President Duterte of the Philippines and President Xi Jinping of China. But this diplomatic protest was apparently in response to them uh, confiscating some of those fishermen's equipment that was already there. What's a little bit weird is, like I said, the incident happened three months ago. The diplomatic protest makes a note of it. They say, you know, back in May, you confiscated this equipment. And it's kind of like, well, why are you complaining now about it? Why'd you wait three months later? This same kind of thing happened with the radar gun incident where the Philippine Department of Defense complained about a Chinese warship training its radar gun on a Filipino ship, but it came like two months after it happened. So it's not abundantly clear what prompted this diplomatic protest. Maybe there's some other issues going on, and the Philippines is just digging up problems, long-held concerns that they've had. I think the Philippines also complained about radio challenges by Chinese air traffic controllers. Yeah, that, that's another part of that diplomatic protest. That actually might be what kicked it off. It's very likely that a Philippine you know, Air Force aircraft or maybe a Philippine naval vessel got a warning from China while passing through what the Philippines considers its own territory. And then that led to a spiral of the Philippines saying like, well, you know what else you've done? You've also done this three months ago. You've done this four months ago and five months ago. What have you? So I think this kind of speaks to these long simmering tensions, especially over like territorial integrity that no matter what kind of bonhomie, rapprochement, friendship, whatever you want to call it, uh, the Philippine president has with his Chinese counterpart, these 
territorial integrity issues are always going to kind of bite into that. They're always going to kind of be there and you can't really paper over it. It is kind of intriguing how whenever the Philippines wants to make a criticism like that, at the same time, they're trying to smooth it over. Oh, um, yeah. I, I saw this quote from the, the presidential spokesman, Harry Brock, who says, this won't affect the entirety of our intimate relationship with China. So, you know, and one gasp that is complaining about Chinese air traffic controllers telling, you know, Philippine planes to, mm -hmm. to get out of their airspace. And the other time they're also saying that they still have an intimate relationship. It seems kind of weird. I mean, this is pretty typical of the past few years, especially under Duterte. Um, I believe just last week, the president of the Philippines, the the palace, their version of the White House, what have you, made a statement that they were going to negotiate or work with China on vaccines for COVID-19. And that's kind of great. So they clearly get some benefits from China every so often. But then I think what happens is you still have a lot of people in the Philippine government that are concerned over these territorial issues and the South China Sea who will periodically bring them up to make sure things don't go too far pro-China. And then you have other people in the government that are trying to make sure we do move towards China. You know, we don't want to be too pro-US. I mean, the fact that all this is happening while the Philippines is at RIMPAC, um, exercising with the US and other allied nations is kind of interesting to me. So, you know, there's this constant contradiction, push and pull, whatever you have it. I think it's very indicative of what's been going on for the past few years. And those RIMPAC exercises you referred to are these multilateral naval drills run by the U.S. near Hawaii, right? Yep. They're going to end August 30th. They started August 17th. I believe there's over 20 nations participating this year. It happens every year. Some countries get invited as observers. China used to be an observer, but they aren't anymore. Honestly, a lot of good footage, a lot of good photos are coming out of that. It's a Good way for U.S. Navy to kind of coordinate with its allies and also some partner nations and even some nations that just want to attend to get the experience. So that's been going on. So anything you're watching out for in the coming week? Well, now that I've apparently outed a Chinese nuclear attack submarine, I'm keeping my blinds shut and I'm watching out to see if I'm on some type of Chinese hit list. That's a joke. <laughs> I don't think I am. But uh, I'm looking for that. I'm checking... Some other things that I've noticed on Chinese bases, you know, are there any more aircraft that are landing there? I've spotted a couple like military transport aircraft, that sort of interesting landing and taking off. Um, and of course, I'm paying attention to RIMPAC and I'm paying attention to Chinese fishing fleets. Uh, that story on the fishing boats from earlier in the week, actually, I think that's something to keep track of for sure, because as these Chinese fishing fleets return to the South China Sea and the East China Sea, there's huge concerns about whether or not there's going to be a lot more butting of heads, there's going to be a lot more sinking incidents. So I'm keeping an eye on that. Well, it was very striking how the state media showed all these Chinese fishing boats pouring out of the port. So yeah. um, it's definitely one to watch. Yeah. So thank you, Drake, for all your interesting comments this week. All you listening in can check out his articles uh, about South China Sea at rfa.org and bananews.org. You can also catch up there on our previous podcasts, or you can do a search in Spotify and iTunes if you just search for South China Sea Currents. And if you have any questions or feedback, please, please email us on South China Sea, that's all one word, at rfa.org, or you could direct message drake on twitter his handle is drm underscore long i'm matt pennington with drake long the south china sea reporter for radio free asia and banana news 
This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Red Every Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again.